in discussing the various components of the armor of God, we're speaking of the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We saw that the two things that are prominent in the discussion of the breastplate of righteousness was that it was A, a breastplate and B, it was of righteousness and that underneath the breastplate was the heart. We talked about the breastplate having insignias on it of rank in, in the, whenever one went into battle and we talked about how God begins by training you as a young person in the ways of righteousness and that all judgments come out of the heart and therefore if the heart is unrighteous, the judgment that flows out of the heart opposes God. The main judgment that comes out of an unrighteous heart is rebellion and self-centeredness. You choose what is best for you, which is typically short-term, it, it may enrich you, it may, it may uh, elevate you, but you do not have the power to sustain it over the course of a lifetime and eventually, eventually you'll be no more than a child that's grown old and an old man or an old woman acting as a child is living in an environment of shame and reproach and it undoes all that your life has ever stood for. When there's a time in your life when it's okay to be young and to make the mistakes of your youth, but then you should grow up, you should grow past that. If you don't, when you're old, you'll be a fool in your old age and it doesn't matter how much money you have, the behavior will be that of a fool and it will it will destroy any legacy you hoped to have otherwise achieved. We're looking at some of the most wealthy and famous people who are now in their 60s and the, the, the bloom is off the rose. You have to take into account their boyish behavior or the behaviors attributed to uh, the, the unseasoned nature of youth now dominating them in their old age and the stories are coming out, companies they've built are under scrutiny for making excuses for them uh, while they knew the behaviors for so long and, and these are humiliating demeaning, diminishing things. It always attends those who retained behaviors long past the time when those behaviors were seemly, were judged to be seemly and right. Rebellion, when it is not cured in the youth, becomes 
the cloak of old age and the cloak is tattered, worn and unbecoming to anybody. It's simple, you know, righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. That's really what I'm saying. Now, God spoke to Israel about circumcising the foreskin of the heart and then speaks to administering righteous judgments. He administers justice for the fatherless, not showing partiality, not taking a bribe, having the fear of the Lord and so on. Now, if you go to the, to the Psalms, which, we, which we're about to do, go to the Psalms, Psalm 82, and here is, here is an, a most amazing thing, a most amazing Psalm really. Psalm 82 develops the principle of righteous judgments. So in spiritual warfare, one of the most effective weapons against the enemy is righteous judgments, judging things out of a righteous heart. You know the enemy has no weapon that can penetrate a breastplate and strike a heart if the heart underneath is righteous. Over time, over decades, the glory of such a person will become resplendent and people will see the goodness of God in the face of one whose heart is righteous. And that's the contrast to what I've just been talking about, uh, a heart of rebellion that nurtures the emotions of youth into old age without change. But here, Psalm 82, magnificent psalm, it says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty and He judges amongst the gods. You actually see that, G-O-D-S, judges amongst the gods. Now this isn't some reference to um, folly of Nephilim and all of that. There are no gods like that. But it does say God judges amongst the gods, so who are the gods? How long will you judge unjustly? So these gods are ones who are called to judge but their judgment is unjust, exactly as God warned Israel not to do in Deuteronomy 10, 16-20. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? You're taking bribes, that's wicked, it's the antithesis of being righteous. And then he tells uh, in the psalm, he, said, he accuses the gods of doing the very thing he told them, told Israel not to do. He told Israel to defend the poor and the fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the needy, saying you're not doing it to whomever the gods are. 
And he says, deliver the poor and the needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know nor do they understand. These gods neither know nor understand the importance of righteous judgment. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are unstable. When the heart of the gods, we haven't decided yet, or we haven't talked about yet who are the gods, when their hearts are corrupt and wicked, when they're not righteous, when they do not understand, when they walk about in darkness, all of the foundations of the earth are unstable. Human foundations, the foundations upon which human society sits, are institutional foundations, foundations of the courts, the administrators of justice, of governments, uh, representations and the like, human foundations. It's not that the earth is going out of orbit, it's not talking about natural things. He's saying human society and the pillars of human society, what it sets upon, depend upon the integrity of righteous judgments among those who are called the gods all the foundations of the earth are unstable. I say, God continues, you are gods and all of you are the children of the Most High. So that's the first real description we have of who are called gods, children of the Most High. That would be the body of Christ. Jesus alone came to show us the Father. Nobody else, not Old Testament, not New Testament, not other religion, no one else has granted us access to the Father. So we cannot be the children of God apart from Christ. So it's the body of Christ. I say you are gods and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men. So there are men who are the children of God, given an elevated status, but refusing to judge righteously, they're reduced to men again and fall like one of the princes. Satan, who was given a high and exalted place, did not continue in righteousness and fell. And then God speaks to the one who is the quintessence of righteous judgments, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Arise, O God. Now, he doesn't say, Arise, O gods. Arise, O God. So it's the one. Judge the earth. For you shall inherit all nations. That's the clue that tells us that's Jesus. He's referencing Jesus because God said to Jesus in the second psalm, Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Ask of me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth for your domain. So God gave to Christ 
as his inheritance all the nations of the earth. Now, we still haven't answered the question, why does God refer to the body of Christ as God's? And how does that square with God saying to Jesus, Arise, O God, and you will inherit, judge the earth because it's yours to inherit all the nations. Well, let's look at the word God or gods here. Every reference in this passage, beginning with the first word and going all the way through to the last verse of this psalm, every reference to the word God is the word, Hebrew word Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. Now, there are many names for God. El Shaddai is one, uh, we refer to Jehovah as another, and so on. And so is the term Elohim. God has many complexities to his character, many things he is and does, for which specific names are assigned. So for example, El Shaddai is a reference to his provision, for it depicts a woman who is a nursing mother, whose breasts are engorged with milk to feed a child who is an infant. But Elohim is the root of the term majesty, majesty of which the term magistrates is a derivative. Hence the whole chapter is about the majesty associated with divine judgments. That's why the whole chapter is about judgments. And we then are the magistrates The body of Christ carries the standard of God's righteous judgments. Now, he tells us that these standards exist in us, but they're not not a written codex. So legalism is not what he's talking about with righteous judgments. They're judgments that come out of a righteous heart. And we are the magistrates. How do you know that the righteousness that comes out of the heart, or how do you know that the judgments that come out of the heart are righteous or unrighteous? Well, look at the result. He says, let's read the same psalm, understanding that he has assigned us the role of his representational majesties. When we are clothed with righteousness in our judgments, we may be referred to as majesties. The Queen of England is routinely referred to as your majesty. That's not because she wears Uh, the outfits that she does, and it's not because occasionally she sits by a gilded desk wearing a crown or sits on a chair, a gilded chair wearing a crown and an ermine stole and 
jewelry. That's not majesty. Anybody could have that. You just need to be rich enough. It's not majesty. Majesty, your majesty, is when she is the she is the personification of the entire state. So when she's in public, attending to the responsibilities associated with her status, even her late husband was not allowed to walk next to her. No one is allowed to walk next to her because that's a position that shows familiarity and no one may be familiar with the state. So, she's majesty when she's clothed with the responsibilities of judgment associated with the state. Otherwise, she's just costuming for the occasion. That's not when she is your majesty. It's whenever she is representational of the state, then she is majesty. When we are representational of the living God in judging matters, then we may be clothed in divine majesties, in the majesty of representing the Lord. Do you know this was the glory that Jesus left us in John 17 when He's talking to the Father and He said, Father, the glory You have given to Me, I have given to them. So we are clothed in the majesty that Jesus had when He was here on the earth, but we're only clothed in it when we are exercising majesty according to the standards of divine righteousness. We are not naturally majesty, we're only majesty when we are utterly restrained by the nature and character of the living God in the judgments that come out of our hearts. That's why we cannot show partiality in our judgments. Now what keeps us tied to righteous judgments in our hearts is the fear of the Lord. Now if we exercise righteous judgments consistent with the fear of the Lord, it doesn't matter whether people agree with us or disagree with us. We are the Lord's representatives and even if they kill us, in the end, when they shall stand before God, God will vindicate the judgments that we have undertaken out of the heart of righteousness, restrained utterly by the fear of the Lord. Now, here's my question. Who is subject to divine majesties and righteous judgments? Who is subject to it? Everyone is, because it's God sitting enthroned in your heart rendering judgments. No, but that's not specific enough. Satan is subject to the judgments of a righteous heart. 
You want to know spiritual warfare and overcoming and ruling over even the evil one? That's what it looks like. But if you go into situations deciding what you want, pretending to be enthroned in God's righteousness, you're going nowhere. And more than that, your enemy will put you to rout. So, what is the condition of the heart in which righteousness resides normally? It's pure. It's pure. What was Jesus telling us when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're capable, if you're restrained by the fear of the Lord, so your prejudices, the outcomes you want, the agendas you wish to advance, you give no attention to because the fear of the Lord restrains you in all of your judgments. Even Satan is subject to you because he's subject to Christ who is enthroned in your heart when you are speaking out of a righteous heart. Listen, you understand why God cannot give rule to people whose emotions dominate everything they do? Because they can't represent the Lord and He will never send them up to sit in judgment over Satan or over any work of the devil. But look at Jesus in His trials where He, out of His righteous heart, judges Satan. First of the judgments. Satan comes and says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones be made bread. Seem the reasonable request, except that acquiescing to Satan's terms in anything makes Satan the ruler. Jesus' response It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What do we know? that Jesus is utterly restrained by the fear of the Lord, by the fear of God. How, what do I mean utterly restrained? Well, He's hungry. He's hungry. The emotions of His soul are crying out for food and drink. Does that move Him? No. In a condition of ravenous hunger and thirst, he does not give in to his enemy's attempt to lure him into his domain, into Satan's domain. Because Satan cannot judge you or exert any measure of rule over you if you're not in his domain. If you're not in his domain, you're not subject to His rule. It's pretty simple. He does not have personal jurisdiction over you if you are not in His domain. 
And if what you want is not something dependent on him, he does not have subject matter jurisdiction over you either. If you don't have jurisdiction, whether personal or subject matter, over an individual, you can't judge him. You can't judge her. That's why the scriptures say you're not subject to judgment. Doesn't mean there's no authority that you're under. No, you're under the authority of Christ. But he says you can't be judged. It's synonymous with saying you cannot be condemned because you're not in his domain. He doesn't have the right to rule over you. Now, how do you impose your will on someone over whom you have no jurisdiction? You don't have personal jurisdiction over him because he's not in your domain. You don't have subject matter jurisdiction over him because whatever he wishes, he desires, is you're not, it's not subject to you. How do you rule over him? Well, you don't. He's free. And whatever your rule is, and Satan's rule is always corrupt, whatever your rule is doesn't apply to him. So if your rule brings condemnation and death and he's not in your domain and you cannot judge him, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because you're not walking according to the flesh. You're not judging things according to the flesh. You're above. You've passed from death unto life. You cannot be condemned. That's what these scriptures mean. They speak of judgments and a heart of righteousness that intends to do the will of God and the insignias on your breastplate indicate superior rank. You are, you, I, I'm amused about uh, how easily people confer lofty titles to undeserving folk. A few years back I was interviewed by someone from Christ for the nations because they determined that I was, quote, one of God's generals because it was popular in those days to talk about various ones being generals of one sort or another, prayer generals and warfare generals and the rest of it. That's just nonsense. Made-up titles do not mean a thing. It is, do you have the goods or do you, don't, do you not? Really. Because it's not generals vis-a-vis each other. You could go to any uh, second-hand store and find insignias. You could order stuff online and put them on your shoulders. That doesn't mean a thing. Do you have the goods? Is your heart a righteous heart? and is is what flows out of your heart the judgments of righteousness. If so, then even Satan is subject to your judgments. Yeah. 
will continue with spiritual warfare. It's mighty stuff. I'm Sam Solon. We'll talk again. Bye-bye.